Have you got your mojo working? Do you just want to give it a good kickstart? Either way, you've come to the right station. The Mojo Radio Show will help you get your mojo working at work and at play. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Hey everybody and welcome to the end of season five of the Mojo Radio Show. It's been a big, big season and I have to say uh, it's felt like a long race. It in fact has been a marathon, which leads us into our special guest for today, who is a champion marathon runner. It's been a great year. We are going to finish with a bang, I promise you, and we're going to ensure that you've got your mojo working right through until the end of this season. Driving the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show. Robbo, welcome to another great week on the show. Thank you, mate. It has been a long season, hasn't it? But it's been a good one. Tell you what, we've dropped some gold in there along the way. It's interesting the people that the show influences that you you don't know about until they contact you. But there's a lady called Tess Newton-Kane who is a high flyer in the government and political and, oh, how would you say it, in the, in the Pacific region, someone who drives change on behalf of the people in the Pacific. I mean, an amazing person. <laughs> Sent me a note saying, this is for Robbo. Well, here we go. <laughs> it says, is it acceptable for me to use the term reach out in the workplace? No, you can never use the term reach out. Never, <laughs> and never, goes, never. And the graphic, which I get you to put up on Facebook, it says... Are you a member of the Four Tops? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's acceptable. No, stop it immediately. I think that was yes. absolute I, gold. I am in this. I am in the no clan. Absolutely, never, never, never reach out I to hate, someone. I hate that term. Get in contact with someone. Absolutely. We mentioned this a second ago, but I've got to know, getting towards the end of the season, who's your favourite interview for the year? Oh, it, it, you know what? It's like that thing, who's your favourite kid? Yeah. Or who's, who's your favourite player in the Broncos? It's just impossible to choose. They're all good. Okay. So, um, so who, did you, who did you think, put it this way, who did you connect with the most then? Can I give you a couple for different reasons? Yeah, I've got a couple myself, so go. <laughs> I think that the, the interview that as an interviewer – and as a member of the show, Mm -hmm. that I got the most pleasure and pride out of was Mm -hmm. Noel Razor-Smith. Right. Only because when you sent me the clip of him talking about prisons and we thought we'd do a segment, and then I challenged myself to say, could we make an interview out of it? And I remember that night we walked out of the studio high-fiving going, that was just (laughs) awesome. So I think as an interviewer, that one was a highlight. I think of impact, probably last week's show, Ray Cash Care, who is just a kick-down-doors type of guy. Yep. And the fact that we got behind the seal curtain to talk about something he'd never said out loud before, I think that one was pretty special for me. Yeah, right. There you go. They're two big shows. All right, so who, who, who have you got? Well, Noel is on my list just for pure and pure entertainment and just <laughs> a, a, a geezer guy. Dime, diamond geezer. 
for just for a con- forget the interviewing, just for a conversation. That was just so much fun. Um, but for me, from a business sense, the the one I probably got the most of out of was a mate of yours, Dirk Anthony. Oh, really? He was, he was great. Yeah, it's oh, probably the one I've taken the most away from this year. Don't tell him that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> An Aussie living in the UK, I never, yeah. I'll never live that down. He was and um, an ex radio guy, just a top bloke. Yeah, he, he was good. He's he a was, top guy. And it was a good interview. I, I took a lot away from that. Dirk's so, a diamond geezer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe he knows Noel. We should ask. The Mojo Radio Show. Now, confession straight up, it's no secret that I love the sport of marathon running. And when I got an email from a listener, Cindy, who said, I've just read Dina Caster's book, who, and Dina Caster, for those who may not be familiar with the name, won a bronze medal in the Olympic marathon. She won Chicago marathon. She won the London marathon. She's the record holder, the national record holder for America in the marathon distance. This lady has been there and done that and won the Masters not so long ago at the Boston Marathon. Just an amazing athlete. Her and her husband have built their own running track to be able to teach young kids and young athletes all they know. It's just an incredible person. And the book is just a wonderful read. I'm going to say getting to the end of season five, for anybody who loves their sport, performance, mental strength, the mental approach to things, that sort of stuff, this would be a great Christmas present. So based on Cindy's note to me, I wrote to Dina and I got to say it took a lot of tracking down to get into Dina's calendar because the New York Marathon was happening and so on and she's very busy. But I am very, very privileged to say that we have Dina Caster on the line. Dina, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you so much for having me. Always makes me feel feeble when we have marathon runners on this program, Gary. Oh, this one will make you feel feeble. In fact, I've got to say, just from the outset, um, Dina, when I wrote to you, we actually had the wife of one of Australia's great athletic coaches who coaches many great marathon runners in our little country, write to me and say, uh, I love the show. I've just read this book. You have to get Dina on your show. So that's how you came to be here today based on someone who's in the sport loving your book. Oh, that is so nice. That is, it's really touching to hear that because the book was actually one of my hardest finish lines to get to. It was um, just to reflect on so many years and have to dig really deep on not my the maturity of my mindset now after decades in the sport, but to bring myself back to when I was processing and trying to come back from defeat or move on from victory, that, um, that those were all really great lessons and to remember them in real time um, as opposed to from the perspective now was a, was a huge challenge. It's interesting, Dina, just at the outset, you've got an incredible record on the road. And today when somebody walks up to you, because you've just come back from the New York Marathon, somebody walks up to you today and says, what do you do? How do you like to reply? If I'm not going to make up a story to a guy sitting next to me on the airplane because I don't want to talk, then I would tell the <laughs> truth and say that um, that I'm a professional athlete. And although past my prime, I still I still challenge myself on a daily basis and um, and go around the country um, talking and listening to the people in the sport that I love. I I think that there's no sport in the world that. 
um, that has such a, a, a mutual respect and um, and an understanding of what the next person is going through than than our sports. We no matter if it's your first marathon or you're trying to go for your Kipchoge and you're going for a world record, it's amazing to me that those people could go through similar ebbs and flows in their buildup and similar ups and downs within the course of a race. And um, and so to really understand that, I feel like it's a really gift to be able to listen and learn and also um, talk and teach people within the sport. I heard you say that your proudest moment or your proudest race result came in Chicago where you actually came sixth and it was seven minutes slower than your PB, which was 219. Why, yeah. why was that race in Chicago so important for you. Why were you so proud of that result? I think I was proud of it because in in other great performances in my career where I was winning races or getting medals or breaking records that um, Chicago, I felt like in my buildup and in the race, there was so much going wrong. Um, I, you know, I was past the prime of my career, but I found it within me to get going again and, 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 a master's American record in the marathon seemed enticing and I was putting in the work, but I was disrupted by allergies and by fires in California that had the air quality so bad. I, I forewent runs on certain days. I got the flu two weeks before the race. So there was just so much um, going wrong, but I decided with the help of my husband, dismiss all that and focus on all that went right. All the long runs I got in the longest tempo run of my entire career um, mile repeats still under five minutes, five minutes a mile. So things I hadn't done in probably, um, five, five to eight years that I was accomplishing again. And so I had to be proud of that instead of nervous about what was going wrong in my buildup. And then even in the race itself, missing a water bottle, um, getting tripped, getting nicked, my heel getting nicked and falling out of my shoe and having to kick it back on, feeling great one minute and awful the next. And then that, you know, the last 5K seeming absolutely unbearable. There's like a a mile at a time or even a step at a time seemed like too much to bear, but just continuously refocusing and and reminding myself that the challenge is what I love because I get to use the the tools I've worked so hard to build on, the mental tools I've worked so hard to build on, and um, and really let that carry me to the finish line. And it amazed me at the finish as I'm being embraced by Andrew, my husband, and, and now coach, and um, and giving my daughter a sweaty kiss that this um, at any moment in the marathon buildup or the marathon itself, any one of those things could have derailed me and given me an excuse to fail. And instead I refocused and was persistent and resilient in the face of those challenges. And I feel like that is, that was symbolic of my entire career and really life in general. There was a point, Dina, where you really had to call upon your resilience because there are people who train, four years for an Olympic marathon. There are people who train their whole life for that Olympic moment. And in 2008, mile three of the Olympic marathon, you were actually favoured to win or to run particularly well. Let's say finish at the pointy end, but then you had to finish the race in a bus because you had a foot issue. What, What process did you go through 
in your own mind. I mean, four years of focus, you're there as a favourite, you're expected, there's expectation all around you in your own mind, your husband's mind, your team's mind. But to have to finish in a bus, you are a resilient, gritty person. How did you deal with that? Yeah, I would I would say that I had my pity party on the bus, don't get me wrong. I did like cry into the, <laughs> the rough fabric of the towel that the overly bleached towel they gave me. Um I did cry, um, but it was it was only briefly and then I just sat up straight and I looked out the window and although I was in extraordinary pain because I had completely um broken, I had a complete fracture of my third metatarsal and it came very suddenly. Um I just knew because it was so sudden and it happened in the Olympic Games, not in practice the week prior where it could have been a quieter, a quieter injury, that to happen on that stage, it was going to come with a very big lesson and I wanted to learn it and share it. And so that gave me a lot of focus. And I think, again, running, teaching me to be goal-oriented I found out in that moment, my God, I am so fit, but something in me is extraordinarily unhealthy because I should be capable of of going this distance. And so I understood immediately there was a difference between being fit and healthy. And then knowing that I had a goal to figure out what went wrong, what stone did I not uncover um, to in my in my marathon buildup to to be sitting on that bus. And so I really, from from that moment, still probably only halfway through the race, um, following the final the final um, or the last place girl. I was already processing, um, getting myself to a point and processed it enough to, to be on the road to recovery. And even in the Olympic Village, when I, I was obviously angry at my body for not holding up, but when I saw that um, the, swell, the swelling in my foot was so severe that it actually replaced the bone, it set it back in place. I was absolutely amazed that my body was already starting to heal so quickly. So I think when you're... When you're in a when you're in a good space mentally, and that had to come with years of practice. I say, if I hadn't been practicing positivity and optimism and and focusing on on goals, um, and okay, this isn't this isn't what I expected out of the day, but I've got to get something out of it, and so I'm going to learn about this. I think years of practicing allowed me to process and heal much quicker because um, if I were to be in a pity, pity party and my body was releasing more cortisol and stress in, in my body, then it would have been, um, it would have taken my foot a lot longer to heal. So I think just having that attitude actually helped me not only emotionally, but physically. Gold, Robert. Gold. Marathon gold. Gold medal gold. Oh, absolutely. I've, I've got to say, Dina, I'm just hoping, and I hope, this is a hope, that people hearing this relate the, the lessons you learned about Chicago and the lessons you learned in 2008 in the Olympic marathon. Those le- what I'm hearing you say is that those lessons apply to any part of our world, whether it be not getting a business proposal, not winning a piece of business, disappointment at touch football, uh, a little girl's disappointment at losing a netball final. I mean, these these lessons that you are writing about and talking about transpose themselves into every area of life. And I, I, I actually do think there is gold coming out of that event for you. And something it leads me into is that if you speak to anyone who's done a marathon, 
regardless of, I remember this is something that one of our Australian greats, Steve Monaghetti, said to me. He said, doesn't matter how good you are, you're going to hurt during a marathon. Like there's a point, doesn't matter how good you are, which end of the race you're at, you're going to hurt. Yet you've said this, this lovely comment that when, when it did hurt for you, you consciously thought, is this thought serving me? <laughs> is there a thought I could have that will serve me better? Just talk me through how you consciously do that in your mind. Yeah, I, I think um, that's an important point because it's really just the act of paying attention. Like we have thoughts that are uh, spontaneous and abrupt and we react um, um, either um, thoughtfully or sometimes it accidentally even comes out of our mouths. <laughs> but whatever the case, we do, we do react. We're, we're human beings and, um, and we have those impulses. And it's important to honor that, that, that disappointment and the disappointment or the fear or the frustration or the feeling, feeling cheated for not getting the promotion when someone you feel less deserving got it. That it's really important to, to acknowledge that and then see how to grow from that. Like maybe reflect on any reason why you didn't get the, the promotion. And then, so it's, it's just about being analytical. Pay attention to how we're thinking take a, take a deep breath and then, and then analyze a little how you want to move forward. Because I, I also believe there's a million cliches out there around it, but if we, if we react on every, on every impulse and make that our driving force, then, um, we could really, we can really, um, uh, detour ourselves and make our character really unbecoming, um, and it, it, we could be worse off for that. So I think having the reaction is natural, but then pausing and figuring out how you want to move forward and how you want to carry yourself. And um, I think it's easier once you have a, a child because you you want to lead by example with them. But why shouldn't we also want to lead by example for our spouses so they could see our courage and our determination or the rest of our family or our good friends and to be able to um, to to work in a capacity that we can feel really proud of of who we are, even in the face of disappointment. It's interesting. Just a, a moment ago, you were talking about being in Chicago and things weren't going your way with someone stepping on your shoe and drink station issues, and then you talked about breaking it down. And I've heard you say this: you, you broke it down to just just worry about the next marker. Just worry about getting to the next drink station. Just worry about getting to the next mile indicator. Is compartmentalizing and breaking things down a big part of your I don't know, psychology of dealing with life, Dina? Is it something where you consciously break things down to say, let's just get the, the next little bit done? Yes, and I think I think the marathon is a great example for that. But but anything in life, if we have um, some some big opportunity that we're chasing, uh, that twenty six point two miles seems unbearable when you when you're towing that starting line. You think, what have I gotten myself into? Why did I pay to do this? How did why did I sign up? For this? Whose idea was this anyway? <laughs> Knowing that you're going to have such a long morning in front of you, but to break it down, I I actually joke quite often about 
um, my marathon isn't 26.2 miles or 42K, I should even say. That seems unbearable. My marathon isn't 42K, it's eight water bottles long. And eight water bottles is, is a lot more um, easy to fathom and easy to digest than, than thinking about getting out there and running 42K um, and pushing your limits. So to break it down in any way, whether, whether it's by water bottles, whether it's by cheer stations, the points you're going to see your family along the course, that breaking it down in a way that um, that allows you to put one foot in front of the other without without the, the fear or, or daunting task of the entire distance is, is really important. And maybe people don't feel that 26.2 miles is daunting and that's, and that's wonderful. But I think, I think we could get the best out of ourselves as, as um, kind of celebrating the little accomplishments along the way. Like, okay, one water bottle down, hooray, and flood your body with endorph- feeling, feeling good and endorphins so that you can get through that next 5K. And, uh, and I think uh, so much of life is like that because if we, if we look at, at the, um, where we want to be vice president of our corporation 10 years down the line, that seems that seems like a really big deal, but if we work on on a daily basis being the best we could be at our jobs and and um, and being the um, uplifting to our coworkers and helping and inspiring that we can get there even quicker than we imagined. I know what Robbo's thinking right now, Dina. He's thinking a game of footy on the weekend is a six pack. It's not eight one pops, <laughs> it's just a six pack of beers. <laughs> you can make it a Believe in you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I got to say, Dina, I reckon that is absolute gold. It's a gold water bottle. I I think that that analogy of don't think about it as 42Ks, thinking about it as eight water bottles and celebrating along the way in little endorphin hits, I actually think that is just gold. I, I That is really powerful. I think one of the biggest lessons that even if you do break it down into smaller bits and, and you, and you work your way through it and you can't get to that finish line because there are days, we all have days like that, that we, we, we put it all out there and we are resilient and determined and, um, and we're, uh, and we're ready for the task and something happens that, that gets in our way that we just can't push through. Those days are there. But if you do all those, if you, if you make all the right decisions along the way and, and you are working hard to get there, in the, in the long run, you're proud of that performance anyway because, because you know you gave it your all. And so that's the importance of each micro decision that we're making, that if we know that, that we did all we could, sometimes those, those performances that we, that we don't reach our goals can be extraordinarily proud. Uh, because because we um, because we know we gave our we gave our best. We've reached our goal of halfway through this interview, which means it's time for a Tim Tam, Gary, <laughs> <laughs> an Oreo, <laughs> eight Oreos. Um, Dina, you mentioned the start line, and I just want to camp on the start line. I got a couple of questions about the start line. So, anyone who's done a big race like that, or any race at all, you whether it be lining up to play a game of footy or netball or darts or a race, but you get to the start line. How did you bring yourself to that moment? London, Chicago, Boston, Olympic Marathon. There's a lot of nerves, a lot of anxiety. You are actually the front of the line. You tow that white line. How did you bring yourself to that exact moment? I think, I think when I'm standing on the, on the start line, I feel an enormous amount. I don't feel 
nervous that like the, the feeling in my stomach, which might be similar, like little butterflies fluttering around and an elevated heart rate and feeling a little tingly in my limbs, that, um, that same, that same feeling, I feel like it's excitement. I feel so proud to be in that moment, knowing that I put in the best work I could. Maybe it wasn't perfect, but it was the best I could do in those months leading up. And I'm really excited to see where that brings me. A lot of marathon training isn't racing on every given weekend, but just staying at home and putting in the work week after week. And it might be a little monotonous. And to me, it's exciting to see what that, what the potential of that buildup can bring me to. And only by, by being my best self in the race, could I really get a sense of, of that type of work? If, if I'm, if I'm giving up or giving in anywhere in the race, then I really don't get a sense of that. So I love to, to, I love that challenge of knowing that the next two and a half hours are just going to be a complete commitment of everything that I am to see what that's to, to kind of, um, to showcase what that training, that training is. And I also feel an obligation to my team and my coach and my agent to really do a lot to get me to that starting line. The massage therapist that, um, that they are, they are equally committed to me and I feel their commitment every single day. Um, and furthermore, my agent, Ray Flynn, I was talking to him this weekend. He's Irish. And, but don't hold that, that against him. But he's been my manager for about more than 20 years. So more than two decades, he's been my manager. And he this year is, has held his Irish national record in the 1500 in the mile for over 36 years. It's just crazy to me that he was that dominant. And in a year of of Sebco and, um, and the four minute mile even being such an iconic, uh, such an iconic, um, race to, to run. He ran 89 sub four minute miles. So extraordinary. And I celebrate that every time I see him, he's now supporting other athletes reaching their dreams. But I just think the, you know, to appreciate all the people that came before us in this sport doing great things. And, um, I think they should continue to be celebrated. It's interesting, Tina, watching you race as an American. And we've, I think we've all watched a marathon, somewhere. And if you ask anybody to visualize what the front of the race will look like, it'll be Kenyans, Ethiopians, Tanzanians, and just a whole bunch of them ganging up against maybe one or two people who believe they should be there, but in their mind, they don't think they should be there. What made you believe that you could compete with these guys? Because you're on the start line surrounded by the best in the world who are all perceived to be unbreakable. Yet here's Dean and amongst them going, I'm here to I'm here to race. How did you how did you bring yourself to believe that you could compete with these people who are perceived to be the best in the world? You know, I think I think with with any performance, it comes down to belief. That every it, the foundation of of anything needs to come down to belief. You need to believe you are capable, and you also need to believe that you deserve to be up there. That you've put in the work, and you deserve it. And so, I think um, I think there's a lot to say for. For that, and my first professional coach, Joe Vigil, let me know that every single 
uh, workout that I was doing, that if I was breaking five minutes on my mile repeats and getting in uh, tempo runs, uh, 10 mile tempo runs in sub six miles and getting in my 15 quality 15 mile long runs on the weekends that I could be a national champion. And so as soon as I started accomplishing those times in practice, I thought, Oh my God, I could totally be a national champion. And I got demolished, um, um, at my first national cross country championship. But I think what he taught me more than anything is, um, is that disappointment doesn't have to mean that I'm a failure. Disappointment means that I care and that I'm invested and I expect more and want more out of myself. So let's get back into training and and continue working. And he taught me that also in victory, that the following year when when I won that national championship that I was after the national cross-country championships and I hugged him immediately at the fin- in the finish line shoot and said, we did it. And he said, I'm not going to pat you on the back until you can run with the best in the world. And he didn't even do that then. Um, but he, <laughs> I think he was showing me that whether, whether, we're, whether we're falling short in our goals, whether we're being defeated or whether we're victorious, that we shouldn't be defined by either. We should figure out what it's going to take to keep going. And I loved that he gave me that drive. And I think that's why uh, at 45 years old, I'm, I'm still so passionate and in love with this sport. There was a quote I heard you mention, uh, Dina, by Barack Obama. And maybe I, I maybe paraphrase this, but I, I think I'm close. There is nothing more defining of our character or satisfying to our spirit than giving our all to a difficult task. And you've Bingo, talked about, you nailed it. Is that right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you talked earlier in the show about embracing struggle and finding yourself in those difficult times. Can you, can you take us to a really dark moment in a race where that dark moment brought you your most satisfying moment? Oh, Wow. I mean, I would, I would jump to 2008 Olympic marathon, um, to realize, to realize that I crossed the barrier, uh, the, the, I crossed over the line, um, in order to, to break my foot, which took a lot of, of training and, um, and to be put in all that work and not be able to, to execute the race that I wanted, um, was, was really heart wrenching. But I think learning such a great lesson that I can be happy and proud and goal oriented with or without this sport because the sport taught me how to do that. So I really feel that my most fulfilling, the most fulfilling part of my career came after that because I knew that that joy would be with me wherever I went because running was able to teach me that. Something which I'm sure not a lot of sports fans maybe know about you, Dina, is that at the age of 27, you're about to be married and you found out that you had melanomas and you found out that it could have been genetic. That, how did that impact your life? Well, as, a, as an athlete going through all that, about to be married, everything's rosy and suddenly you find out it's not just a melanoma, but chances are this could actually be something that's part of your lineage. How did that impact your life? Oh, boy. Um, I So now I've had melanoma three times um, and still don't know 
still don't know much about my um, my personal history because I was adopted, and so I um, I I feel like it's again positivity works magic in some of our hardest times, and I think that knowing that I go to the dermatologist three times a year and I get checked and I get things cut out and burned off and sent in for biopsy that I know that I'm taking the best care of myself I can and under the watchful eye of, of a couple dermatologists because I want different expertise um, um, looking over my skin and um, and I, I feel grateful that I that I have um, a, a shoe sponsor that has SPF in their long sleeve fabric. So I've gotten used to wearing long sleeves, even on a day where it's 70 or 80 degrees outside. I always wear a hat. I wear sunscreen, um, which is almost as um, almost as routine as brushing my teeth in the in the morning. That I just smother myself in sunscreen every morning. Um, so I know I'm doing the best I can to to ensure that I don't um, that I don't go down that road or have a diagnosis too late and and regret it. So um, so I think it's just staying on top of staying on top of it and um, and in saying that uh, during the book writing process I was forced to reflect and re-reflect and take a week and dwell on it um, about my adoption um, because my editor was sure that that was going to be a big piece within the book and I just couldn't get to anything but, and I, I finally found closure in just thinking, my God, my mom was 15 years old when she had me, how brave and courageous to understand that she was incapable of taking care of me and to put me in the hands of people that could take care of me better and, um, and to find the family that I was, um, that I was raised in my mom, dad with my sister who, could have been super jealous over the years with the attention that my running got both within the family and with um, with relatives and and people within the community teachers um, that she has re- remained my biggest fan in this sport so I just feel grateful for the support that they've given me and i I don't look anywhere else to to fulfill any voids because they've given me so much it's interesting Dana isn't it with adoption because when you tell that story, you tell it with conviction, total belief. And we had a, a guest on the show a couple of seasons back called Jackie Fury, who's a psychoanalyst. And Jackie talks about the fact that our history, our backstory is there, but it's the stories we tell ourselves about the backstory that brings that can have a big impact on today and then our life going forward. That that must have been a very important story for you to be able to resolve in your own mind to make sense of it. And I suspect a lot of people would never go down that path to create that story and or be able to believe in a story to help them resolve their past. Was there a defining moment where that all made sense to you? Because you say it now with, with a lot of conviction. I think that's where all this um, last year's reflection came in that I – I never needed to meet my birth family and I, I never felt drawn to it. I just felt a part of my family and, and never really, never really processed it. And I remember people would say, well, um, talk about like, I would say I was adopted and they'd say, oh, I'm sorry. Or, you know, cause they'd say like, you look nothing like your family. They're all dark haired. My sister has long, dark hair, beautifully arched eyebrows, a voluptuous figure that I would die for. Um, 
that that every like I look so different, and it, when people would would acknowledge that, and then find out I was adopted, and and their next words would be I'm sorry, or when I was a younger child, uh, my sister and I playing, and then we started holding hands, and they they asked if we were girlfriend and girlfriend, and I said no, we're sisters. And they were like, but you don't look like sisters. And we said that we were adopted. And in unison, the girl said, oh, then you're not really blood related. And so we just stopped saying I was adopted because of how other people thought of it. Not, not because we were ashamed of anything, but because other people didn't really understand it in the way we wanted them to. And so it was a, it was a fascinating process to just kind of bury that fact and just be a part of, just be this family and then so many years later to have to go through the processing of it um, was, was, was fascinating to just come to something so simple as, as, um, as my birth mother being very brave to, to follow through with having me and then giving me to a more capable family. And also the reality, and this might be my inner optimist, is that you know, with, with being adopted, you are given away and you are chosen. And, and I've always felt chosen in my family. They made me feel very special because of that. And, um, and so that has always been my story because they, they're the ones that was their refrain. My mom and dad, um, made me feel chosen my entire life. And I felt very lucky for that. I'm going to ask you a really self-indulgent question here because I'm also adopted. I was adopted at three days, three days old. Um, and oh, I hear you, yeah, so relatively similar time as me. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hear you yeah. talking about I, I, having... I, I, I'm sorry, Robo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't start. Uh, well, I, I was interested to hear you saying that you, you had sort of... You felt included in your family and all that sort of stuff because that's the way I've always felt. And even my kids now don't understand that I've never had any impulse or any drive to go and find my birth mother or my birth parents. And I'm interested to hear from you because I have my own thoughts on this, but I'm interested to hear from you. Having been adopted and known you're adopted from a very early age, do you think that makes a difference to someone who finds out they're adopted at 9, 10, 11, 12, when mum and dad turn around and go, oh, by the way, you're adopted? Do you think that makes a difference? I, I do, because then I, then I think when you find out later in your life, you feel like what else was a lie, <laughs> You know, I, um, so I, I think they, I think if you, if you find out later, um, it's sad, but also if you go through the trauma of a child of being separated from your biological family and being placed somewhere else, I think is a big, is a big stress. Um, so I think from birth is, is a much easier, uh, concept. If you're constantly told as you're growing up, um, your parents are reading you books on why you were adopted. They're telling you, you were chosen. Um, you are feeling part of the family and not alienated in, in any way that I think that that, that that sets up a much greater success story. Yeah, it's funny. My your story's similar to mine because my mother told me that I was adopted because I came home from preschool at the age of four, telling my mum that I'd heard someone else's mum telling their child that I looked nothing like my mother and I was obviously adopted and blah blah blah. So that's when my mother came out and told me that I was adopted. So our stories are very similar right. in lots of ways. Yeah, absolutely. And and I also I also think that if if you do find out you're adopted later in life to to consider if you don't know the answers and if you're going to create your you're going to create that story 
yourself and 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 believe in it that believe that you were that your your birth family wanted better for you and your adopted family your current family knew that they can provide that for you and i think that that's really beautiful in our culture that it's that adoption has become so worldwide and so accepting um because it was a little quieter back when i was when i was being raised now there's multiracial families and i think it's beautiful to just to be able to see that there's uh, two mommies or two daddies or a single mom and a single dad. It's, it's just the, the culture of families has, has changed. But when, when there's love under, under a roof, I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing to be able to share with any child you choose to bring to your home. There was a, a movie some time back that actually Tom Cruise produced. It was called Without Limits. And it was the story of one of America's great all-time runner Steve Prefontaine and his career and his relationship with Bill Bauman, who was the coach at Oregon State at that time, who actually was the guy who started or created the first Nike shoe, the waffle and so on. So the movie tells. Steve Prefontaine dies in a car crash and there's a scene at the end of the movie where Bill Bauman, played by Donald Sutherland, does a eulogy. And as part of that eulogy, he said, that Steve Prefontaine's belief was the purpose of running was to test the spirit of the human heart. What what do you think the purpose of running is? Do you, would you agree with that? I would agree to that. It was a it was a beautiful it was a beautiful line, and it really did sum up um, as as Bowerman does just sum up the 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 career and spirit of of Steve himself. Um, and I do believe, I think, I think running gives every single person who participates in it, gives them exactly what they need. So if they need quiet time, if they need to be motivated, if they need to lose weight, if they need, um, to be, to be driven and competitive, if they need to raise awareness for a cause or raise money for a cause, I think running is a, is a vehicle that could give people whatever they want. And, um, and for me, I have used it to, to strengthen, to, to strengthen my, my perseverance, all the virtues that I, that I value like gratitude and, and persistence, joy, um, happiness. I guess I haven't pursued happiness, but the default of the default of practicing positivity and optimism has, has led me to a very happy life. So to use running as a way to, to flex that and strengthen strengthen those virtues, um, and I, and I I did it years ago without really understanding that as I was chasing my my goals and dreams, which were faster times, winning races, um, that they were pleasurable moments. But I was I didn't really understand what was driving that until um, until later in my career. Do you know? I'm just gonna. A couple of final things before I hand you over to Robbo for the big question of the interview. But um, what I find fascinating about marathon, and I find it hard to think of another sporting event where where Robbo and I could line up on the line today and race against a world champion, or we could race against the best in the world. And there's very few events, maybe a Spartan type thing, or maybe an Ironman, but you are lining up and racing in a race against the best in the world. 
And in some races like London where it's out and back, you can actually be on the course and see the guys at the front of the race <laughs> whilst you're on the course. It is it is a special sport, isn't it? It it truly is. And and I and I love how how just like we could be inspired by Kipchoge shattering the world record in Berlin this year, we could also be inspired by the this, the, the other 45,000 people out on the course. And I think the longer I stand at a finish line at any given marathon, the more motivated and inspired I become because those those winning performances are, are fantastic and exceptional in their own right. But for people that are out there for four, five, six, hours and trying to, to overcome something within them. No one just does it for the heck of it. I feel like everybody has a, a deeper purpose out there and it's written all over their face with the emotion with which they're finishing with. And those are really, I think it's in a sport like this, that, um, that is kind of this self-perpetuating circle of inspiration on every given weekend, because there's races in great cities all over the world every weekend of the year. And, um, and so they really have the opportunity to, to inspire people. I, my husband and I have, have helped, he's coached, um, created the program for a lot of journalists and influencers at some of the world marathon majors. And, and so we always give them little pep talks ahead of time. And I said, listen, just accept it's going to get hard out there, but you're prepared to handle it and, and to rise to the occasion and to be, to, to define, define yourself under those conditions as strong and resilient and, um, and, and powerful and, and someone who can overcome and, and by all means, smile at the people on the sidelines because they, because you are an advocate for this sport. You're an ambassador of this sport, whether you're running two hours or whether you're running six hours. You, um, you are responsible for making this look really fun so that you're recruiting people on the sidelines for next year. So just kind of taking the, the lightness of it, the, the, the heaviness of it that this is a big deal and you've got to get yourself through it. But then the lightness of it that you're part of a bigger picture. It's not all about you. And so let's, let's inspire someone on the sidelines with a simple smile um, to, to get through it if that's what you need to do. So uh, it sometimes it looks like a grimace, but I'm usually smiling when I'm running. <laughs> One of our great marathon runners, Rob DiCostella, who was actually voted the marathon runner of the decade going, you know, back in the day. And yes. he talked about the fact that the race really starts at 32 Ks where, or in Boston, it's the, the big, what's that big sign there on the, on, the, on the corner as you're going down the course and kind of it's, it's at that mark where the race really starts and you go from I'm racing and it can change into now I'm just surviving and trying to get to the end. And you just talked about your husband and helping people understand that dialogue in their mind. And you've said that we all have an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder. And in marathon, I don't think anything is true where you've got those two voices. How did you, how did you, how do you handle those two voices in a race, Dina, how do you handle those two voices in a day-to-day? Because that's really prevalent for all of us. We all have the devil and the angel. How do you face yeah, up to the, that? those dueling forces sitting on our shoulders. And I actually, 
I think when, when that comes to my mind when I'm in a race, because you're just pulling out anything you can to, to get through it, whether you're distracting yourself with a silly sign on the side of the road or, or trying to lasso a light post and reel yourself in. I do that a lot. But when it comes to, to that, that battle back and forth where it's an important battle to, for, for your angel to win, I, I try to think of, of that devil's voice getting really squeaky and the devil starting to atrophy on my shoulder and, and shrivel up and poof away like self-combust and the angel just kind of like becoming louder and, um, and more boisterous and muscular and maybe her wings are growing um, as she's speaking. And so just kind of, if you, have to, if you have to make light of it and create this like funky cartoon in your head, then create it. It's, um, it's just, the, I think the most creative person wins out sometimes. So, um, so really, so really just, just whatever resonates with you in a moment. Some, some days that might work and other days you might be like, that, that's, this is a stupid movie reel playing in my head and I need to get serious. So I think you just have to practice, practice, practice day in and day out, race after race, gain that experience. But, don't stop trying to get through that moment. That is gold. Another bit of gold. You should drop. You're doing well today. Yeah. No, you don't. You, you're actually. Uh, I think you've got three golds. She's tying with Joan of Arc. Oh well, you know. Yeah. <laughs> triple gold today. We got triple gold. I love it. You're tying with an FBI agent in terms yeah. of gold. You're doing well. Exactly. <laughs> I'm backing Dina to outstay him. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure Joe's a marathon man. <laughs> Dina. I'm going to hand you over to the big man here behind the panel who is going to take you through the, well, the, the more important questions of the interview. Uh, yeah. The big questions, I like to call them. Hmm. We've, um, okay. we, we've proved you can run a marathon, so now we're going to hit, see how you go at a sprint. We're going to try Robbo's Nifty 90. Robbo's Nifty 90. Fire away. So let's start the clock. Here we go. What was the last book that you read? Cathedral of the Wild. The last song you bought off iTunes? Oh, my gosh. Oh, jeez. It's, it's the new Malcolm Moore song, and I don't know the name of it. That's all right. The new Malcolm Moore song will do. What's something that you need to stop doing? Wine. Wine? Just, just less. <laughs> Not stop, just less. That might make this next question redundant because the next question was, what's your indulgence, bacon or Oreos? Baking. Baking, okay. Uh, your favourite swear word. Can we get away with that on here? Shit. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you weren't a marathon runner, is there another sport that you'd love to be good at? Baking. <laughs> <laughs> what's your favourite childhood memory? Um, RV trips with my family. Uh, the last movie you watched more than five times? Fight Club. Fight Club. Oh, wow. What's your favourite oh. place to read a book? Uh, my The Loft at my house. The best moment of your life to date? Um, marrying my husband. And the final question, this is the big one. You drag yourself out of bed in the morning, getting ready to go for a run or whatever your morning routine may be, but it's just not happening. What's the, uh, what's the song you go to? to put on your, in your headphones or put on, on your speaker in the kitchen or whatever to get your mojo going, get you, get you ready for the day? Anything Madonna. A bit of Madge. Yeah, she, she, still, she still does it for me for some reason. Like a lot of her like Ray of Light era where it's really upbeat, kind of techno-y, it still, it's still, it's still, it still gets me, me boiling for some reason. I don't think we've had Madonna before, Gaz. There's a new one. Uh, <laughs> Come on, really? It's not, it's not very mojo show. We're, we're a little bit more rock than roll, if you get my drift. Okay. <laughs>
Nifty Nighty done. Hey, uh, before we let you go, Dina, this is something that I think is very prevalent with our society right now. And because you are now racing in the Masters and you've had a long and distinguished career, I'm just wondering whether this is more true now and you wish you'd have known this when you were either a junior racing or in your early career. But you said that we're not overtrained but under-recovered. We're not overworking, we're under-rested. Do you think that is more prevalent in society now than ever before and it's a lesson you wish you'd have known earlier? Uh, I absolutely think it's prevalent in our society and has been for a long time. We tend to be obsessed with productivity and accomplishment and I think we could could accomplish um, our tasks uh, much more efficiently uh, when we're well rested. Um, but I don't wish I er- learned it earlier because I do believe that we learn everything at the right time. So I do believe that I learned that lesson at a time where I can process and really thrive with it. Nice answer. That's gold. Another Cha-ching. gold. Hey, I think you just, you just, you just take it. Yeah, just taking over Joe Navarro. Joe's gone. Joe. Joe's off, oh, off the podium. He's off the podium. Joe's coming back next year. He needs a rematch. <laughs> I love it. He stepped off the podium. <laughs> He's such a lightweight. Um, Dina, this, I, I, I love your stuff. I honestly could talk about you, your book, marathon running, running in general, life for hours. It was really such an inspiring, beautiful conversation. It was deep. It was just enlightening. And um, where, where, do, where do people go to find out more about Dina? Um, you can go to my website, dinacaster.com, and um, and you can even contact me through there if anybody has uh, needs any mental help, help or um, or just some, some running advice or just to say hello. And if I don't talk to you guys again very soon, maybe we'll be cheering roadside when we see uh, the two-hour mark being broken. Yeah. Well, I've I got to say, I, uh, I as, as an athletics fan, Fan, I certainly hope that's going to be the case because it will be monumental. Fan. Come on, can, can I tell you, Dina? Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? Oh, mate, darts. those guys, they are. <laughs> Try getting to I mean, a dartboard. I, I appreciate. I appreciate the precision that goes into exactly it, oh, and, the mathem- and the mathematics. On. That's a cop out. I think it's interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. (laughs) They are athletes. They are endurance men. They can spend time in a pub going on for a long time. And they're arms. You try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. Just go. Just saying. Yeah. (laughs) All right. And then it's the same arm arm you're probably drinking with. That's really challenging. That's the art. Is not spilling your beer while you're throwing the dart. That's the only skill involved. And the good thing is, kids, we are coming up. It, t- it almost is the dart season. Yes, so we are, uh, we're counting down. <laughs> God Come on. There is really a season? There is. Oh, Dina, yeah. don't, 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 don't start him. Sorry don't for start him, Dina. Okay. We'll be here for the rest of the day. I'm, I'm warning you. <laughs> Christmas is all about darts, my friend. Uh, you and I have got to get together, Dina. There's so much more to talk about yet. Uh, I, I, I obviously have a lot more to learn. <laughs> yes, yeah, so do I because I'm not seeing it either, Dina. I'm with you. <laughs> 
Christina, well, thank you. Thank it's, you, it's you been guys. a real real privilege and a real honor and uh your your record speaks for itself and your book, the way you share your passion for the sport, how you're helping other people, it's just uh it's gold. Thank you. Let's do this again soon. The Mojo Radio Show. How good is it that it's it's end of season five, which means between season five and season six, hmm. we've got this happening. <laughs> I never uh, get tired dear. of this time of the year. Yeah, remind me not to come around to your place on Boxing Day. But however, mate, if you give me any more of a hard time yeah. about darts, I'm sending Noel Razor-Smith, the diamond <laughs> geezer, around to, around to your house and he will sort you out good and proper. i got to tell you, that's one time I would enjoy a, da- a game of darts. Standing in an old English pub with him with a pint in one hand and a dart in the other, that would be my idea of an afternoon well spent. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you cheated and missed your shout, hit you with a sieve. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Shiv, what are they called? A shiv. Yeah, shiv. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Mojo Radio Show. Simmer down, you noisy, screaming thing. All right, so it's been another great show. It's been a marathon, uh, shall we, as we say in the business, uh, to take us out this week. Should we turn to some Pink Floyd? Oh, we, we've never done any Pink Floyd. It's about blinking time. After five seasons, I would think that we did play some Pink Floyd. So if I threw you Pink Floyd, Dina Caster, Marathon, Athletics, what song of Pink Floyd's would you play? Oh, come on, run. We're out.
recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.